You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Jesus, we ask this morning that you would speak truth to us through your word. Jesus, we ask that you would illuminate the truth of your text to us. Holy Spirit, be present with us. God, we, we ask that you would and that you would convict us of areas of weakness and sin in our life. That you would remind us of things the hardness of this world has caused us to forget. And you would teach us new truths of your love, your freedom, your gospel. God, this morning as we open your word, we ask that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts, that these would be pleasing to you. And that we would leave here today having spent the morning with you. Amen. Morning, church. It's good to be here today. We're jumping back into our series on Mark. Uh, If you don't know, we've been going through Mark since last fall. We're going to be closing out Mark chapter 7 today. Um, As as we get ready for that, we 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 were off Mark last week. If you guys were here, we we spent some time celebrating Red Tree Church's 10th birthday, which was kind of cool. We reflected on the vision, the mission, we talked about the story of the church, what God has been doing in West County and in St. Louis and around the world for the last decade. And it was a really cool experience. If you didn't get a chance to be a part of that, I would encourage you guys, jump on the app or the website or the podcast and, and listen to a bit of that. I don't, for those of you guys who are here, I don't know about you guys, but I was, I was just really impacted by that time of prayer. We, we, we broke apart as a church and spent time praying over the different partnerships God has built for our church, as well as praying for future locations that God would plant gospel-preaching churches around St. Louis and around the world. And man, that, that time was just so good for my soul. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I've been, I've been convicted to, 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 to continue in prayer over those cities and those locations and those communities. And that's been, that's been good for me. But today, we're back in Mark. Uh, today's a little, a little different day for us. We're we're few and proud, and we're, we're minus Lane. Thank you to Kurt Parker for serving us today. He just had his fifth child, so the fact that he's conscious, much less present with us today, is a, a miracle from God. So, <laughs> thank you for serving us today, man. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 7, if you want to open there. Um, we have, if you don't have a Bible with you today, we have house Bibles all around the edges of the room. If you're not near the end of a row, you can just give an awkward look to someone and they will hand you one. Um, seriously, thank you, thank you for being here. We, we value the Word of God and we want to make sure the Word of God is accessible to you guys. So if you don't have a Bible, please grab one of those, take it home. Uh, maybe grab one with a little less coffee stains or just talk to one of our pastors and we'll make sure you have access to God's Word. Um, So we're in Mark 7. I want to give us a little bit of context to to catch us back up to the story since we were out for a week, and because I think it's actually pretty important for us to be in sync with what's what's actually going on here in this part of the text. So if you recall, up to this point um, in Mark, Jesus' ministry has been really centered around the region of Galilee. And if you're not super familiar with first century Palestinian geography, don't worry, that just means you're normal. But uh, your Bible's, a lot of them in the back of a map, and you can look at this, and it really is important to the story. So Galilee is the northern part of Palestine, and it's kind of the more rural part of Palestine, and it's where uh, there's a huge community of faithful, practicing Jewish folk living in Galilee. And so Jesus' ministry has centered in, in Mark's telling of the story almost entirely around this region of Galilee, specifically around the Sea of Galilee, this big old huge inland sea or lake in the northern part of Palestine. Jesus has kind of hopped from coast to coast, ministering to Jewish folk, and his message has been simple. God is here. He's doing something new. You can be a part of it. Right? Like this, this whole message of the, the time is fulfilled. It's now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We see that in Mark 1.6. This is the summary of Jesus' message. God is doing something new. You can be a part of it. And he's been proclaiming this message to all these Jewish communities and then backing up his message by performing miracles. 
And so at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is blowing and going. He is known. He's gained close followers, a massive, like he's become essentially a celebrity. Everyone in Galilee knows who he is, all the way up to secular political leaders. Jesus is known. He doesn't just have friends, he has enemies at this point. And, and we talked about this emphasis, we've, we've beat this to death, so I won't camp here, but we've talked about this kind of switch in emphasis in the book, this idea of toward the cross, that Jesus at this point is purposefully tailing his, tailoring his ministry and his teaching that's setting him on this unavoidable collision course with the cross. You see, and, and here's the thing of it, we, we miss this on, on the other side of Easter, right? Because we know the whole story. But what we, what we miss as modern Christians is that what Jesus was teaching, this gospel message that he was proclaiming, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand, was so radical, was so unexpected, was so out of the norm of what the religious folk of the day thought God was doing, that Jesus had to set it up. He had to purposefully work. He had to draw out the truth of this kingdom message because as he preached it to the religious leaders, to the people who had dedicated their lives to studying God's story and studying the prophets and the prophecies, they missed it. They didn't believe what he was saying and what he was doing. And so Jesus purposefully, masterfully sets up the scandal of the cross. He puts himself at odds with the religious and political leaders and he sets up all this social tension by doing these miracles and building up mobs of followers who, will, who hang on his words. He, he has put himself in a place where at this point Jesus is either going to fulfill his ministry miraculously and blow everyone's minds or he is going to fail a complete and utter disgrace. There's no third option for him at this point. So, in that context, last two weeks ago, Pastor Craig took us through this story where Jesus departs from Galilee and makes his way up to Tyre and Sidon, these two cities north of Palestine, north of Israel, along the Mediterranean coast. You again can look at your Bible map in the back and see them if you want. And that may sound like a minute geographic detail, but there's actually some importance here that we're, we're going to get to. So, so Jesus goes and he spends time outside of Galilee, and we get this really weird story where he meets this Phoenician woman, and she begs him to do a miracle for him, and he calls her a dog, and everyone's like, gee whiz, Jesus, <laughs> he's just asking you to help her out, and, and it's this back and forth, and then Jesus marvels at her faith and, and heals her child, and then we move on to our text today, but the, the reason I set that up is that Jesus has broken from his normal pattern in Mark's telling of the story, and he is currently ministering outside of Galilee to Gentile folk. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're picking up in Mark 7, and we're going to start in verse 31. In the 31st verse of the 7th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark tells us this. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Aphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And this is the word of the Lord. So 
Here's our story. Jesus has left his normal ministry route of Galilee. He's gone up to Tyre and Sidon. He ministered to a Phoenician woman and her child. And now he's made his way southeast of the Sea of Galilee. On the east side of the Jordan River in Palestine is this region known as the Decapolis. And Jesus makes his way here and begins to minister. And the crowd brings him a man who is deaf and mute. He can't hear He can't speak. They beg Jesus to heal him. Jesus pulls this man aside privately and then engages him in probably the strangest way that he's engaged any hurt or or sick or unclean people up to this point, right? He pokes his ears, spits on his fingers, wipes it on the guy's tongue, looks up to heaven, sighs, and then the guy gets healed. Again, really weird, right? Jesus is like, come here, come here. I don't want anyone to see this. It's super weird. Come here. (laughs) so he pokes this guy and spits on him and sighs and speaks and then the guy is healed and jesus tells them tells this man assuming presumably his friends and family don't tell anyone about this and and it says i love this the more he told them not to speak the more zealously they told everyone Jesus is like, hey, don't tell anyone I did this. And they're like, yeah, cool. This guy just healed him! And Jesus is like, no, seriously, don't tell anyone. Yeah, yeah, cool. No, seriously, he really, you know, like it's just the more Jesus tells them to stop, the more intense they get. And, and it ends with this line, this man has done all things well. Even the deaf and the mute are healed. And this is the end of the story. And, and we're going to continue this theme, by the way, of Jesus ministering to Gentile people outside of his, his norm. Our story next week, he's going to continue to minister to a larger group of Gentiles. But, but the point is, we're right in the, the center of this section of Mark, where Mark has purposefully chosen to highlight Jesus' ministry to non-Jewish folk, to Gentiles. Uh, by the way, I think it's interesting to note that this story of Jesus healing the the deaf and the mute man is one of the only stories that is completely unique to Mark's telling of the gospel. The other gospel writers chose not to include this story. And which really, I mean, when you think about it, it kind of makes sense because Jesus pokes a guy and spits on his tongue. And they're like, you know what? He already healed a bunch of people. Let's uh, let's skip the one where he pokes the guy's ears. (laughs) But but seriously, there's something, I I find this so interesting because... The vast majority of Mark is copied in Matthew and Luke. They, they wrote theirs later, and they used Mark as a source, and, and they copied the majority of what he said. But there's something about this story, this man's illness, and Jesus' engagement of him that struck Mark uniquely, that, that, it, that, in, that the Holy Spirit inspired him to preserve and tell this story. And the other gospel writers didn't feel the need to tell that. And so I think there's something interesting about this story, that we should, we should give it some time and some space to, to sit with this story and understand what God is telling us from it. Sound good? So, so let's do this. I want to point out just a couple contextual things from this text, some things that I think we'll easily miss, and that's going to take us down a road where we'll eventually end up with the prophet Isaiah, and I think that's going to give us our landing space today, what I think God is trying to speak to us out of this text. So, so we'll, start, we'll start with geography, because I know you guys are really into Bible geography. So remember, Jesus has left Galilee. He's ministered in Tyre and Sidon, and now he's ministering in the Decapolis. These places are not picked just at random. These places actually have some really intense significance. Again, if you look in your Bible map, you'll see Tyre and Sidon. They're just, they're just coastal towns north of Palestine uh, along the Mediterranean Sea. But they have a lot of significance biblically. Tyre and Sidon are old, old communities. They represent people groups that are just as old as the Jewish people. They've been there a long time. You can go back to Kings and Chronicles, and you can read about interactions with the Phoenicians and interactions with the people of Tyre and Sidon. What you'll find is that those people are not remembered fondly by the Jewish folk. Uh, they, they kind of lump all the people groups together north of Israel, the, the people of Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenicians, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the Persians are all kind of lumped together into these evil northern people. The Jews had no 
like for their northern neighbors. They had a strong dislike for them because the northerners constantly battled with Israel and did a lot of damage. And we know that eventually those empires that came from the north and from the east are the ones that God used to judge and conquer and destroy Israel. So when we think about these people, these are not just non-Jews. You have to remember in the Jewish mindset in this world, there are two kinds of people. There's Jews and Gentiles. You're either Jewish or you're not Jewish. But that's not entirely true. Not all Gentiles are created equal. Phoenician Gentiles are the worst kind of Gentiles. These are, and this is, this is ironic because if you look at it, like these people have been conquered by Rome just like Israel. They're just as oppressed and hurt and wronged as the people of Israel, and yet the people of Israel look at them and they're like, yeah, but you deserve it. We don't. (laughs) They don't like these people. These are their enemies, ancient enemies. If there's any people on earth who are into the idea of multi-generational curses and justice, it's the Jewish people. And so they look at their northern neighbors and they're like, you deserve this oppression, you evil people. You destroyed our ancestors and our cities. And so Jesus goes here and ministers to these people. Wow. There's power in that. There's power in that. Jesus wanders up to these key influential cities in Israel's past. The descendants of people who did unspeakable evils to God's people. And Jesus loves and serves and ministers to them just like the Jews. The same blessing, the same presence, the same healing, the same miracles, the same message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. There's something about this new kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, this new thing that God is doing that's so much bigger than the people's expectations It's so much bigger than how these people understood God. It's so much bigger than their theological box that Jesus shows up and he has the same love, the same forgiveness, the same wonder for their enemies as he does for them. Beloved, I believe some of us are here this morning just to hear that. I hope hope you hear that. Jesus does not hate the people you hate. He doesn't. He loves them. He wants life for them. He wants freedom and forgiveness and gospel and abundance for them, just like he wants for you. The people that you think are evil, the people that you think are undeserving of grace, the Ninevehs, where we are eagerly expecting God's judgment and wrath upon them. Liars, abusers, terrorists. These are the people who Jesus says, oh, I love them. Man, I hope they repent and find life. The people who are unfaithful, the people who lie and stab each other's backs, Republicans and Democrats and Cubs fans, (laughs) all of the above, I believe in grace, but really? That was such a dumb joke. I was making a good point. Why did I go there? You get what I'm saying? Jesus doesn't hate who you hate. Beloved, some of us in this room today, we need to hear that. We need to sit in that. Because there are people that we hate. There are people that we hold on to that anger, that hurt. And we're eagerly awaiting their justice. But Jesus loves them. Jesus desires life and freedom for them. He leaves Tyre and Sidon, these ancient enemies of Israel, and he comes down to the Decapolis, this region east of the Jordan River in Palestine, which represents one of the most secularized Greek parts of all of Palestine. There could not be a more Roman culture in this area than the the Decapolis. This this area represents Israel's current oppressors. These are the people in the way of life that is beating down and abusing Israel. And Jesus shows up here and does the same ministry, the same message, the same healing, the same love. 
There's power in this. There's power in this. The people whom Jesus' followers would be going, sweet, these are the ones, you're going to raise up an army and kill all of these people and free us, right? And Jesus is like, no, I think I'm going to heal that guy instead. This is our Jesus. Offers the same free gospel to all people because they're all his people. So, Jesus comes and he ministers in the Decapolis. And, and you guys might recognize this area because we've talked about it before in chapter 5, right? Jesus, this is not the first time Jesus has come to the Decapolis, although he wasn't here very long the first time. In chapter 5, Jesus crossed over with his disciples to the Decapolis and they met a guy named Legion, right? This was during a section of Mark when Jesus was performing these very specific miracles that were undeniably connecting him with deity. That he wasn't just a miracle worker. That he was doing things only God does. He was forgiving sins and cleansing the unclean and controlling the storms and nature. And here in the Decapolis, here in the heart of Roman culture, in the heart of Israel's oppression, Jesus shows up and he faces down a legion of demons, Satan's army itself, and he takes command of them and forces them to submit to his power. This glorious picture of Jesus' divinity and his gospel authority, he takes command over the forces of Satan and casts them away. You can go back and read the story, it's fire. And what's powerful about that story is that Jesus' followers get what's happening. They fall on their faces. They're terrified. They lean into Jesus. Who the heck is this, right? They, in their fear, they recognize his power and his authority. And when Jesus leaves, they go with him. They continue in his ministry with him. But the people of the Decapolis don't have the same reaction. They see Jesus's power and authority, and they're like, you need to leave. We don't want that here. We don't want you here. They beg Jesus to leave. I think it's beautifully ironic that in chapter 5, the people of the Decapolis beg Jesus to leave them alone. And in chapter 7, they beg the Messiah to heal one, of, one who is hurting. Well, what, a, what a powerful reversal. What's the difference for these people? Well, if you recall, the demoniac who was freed of this legion of demons said, Jesus, can I come with you? I want to follow you. I want to be one of your followers. And what does Jesus say to him? Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. Jesus sends the demoniac amongst his people and says, don't come with me back to Galilee. Go and tell these people what God has done for you. Well, evidently, his ministry bore fruit because when Jesus comes back to the Decapolis, and, and, and honestly, like Jesus' fame and his reputation have spread at this point beyond just Galilee, but when Jesus shows up, the people eagerly, eagerly engage him. They beg him to do a miracle, to heal this hurting man who's, who's suffering under the effects of the cursed and broken world. What a turnaround for this community. Think about, think about what had to change in the hearts of these people in such a short amount of time, a few months span between, between the release and freedom of, of the demonized man and now Jesus is here speaking to crowds. Beloved, I believe some of us are here today simply to hear this. When, when God calls you to proclaim the excellencies of his mercy to you, he will do that work. I think often we, we hear this, right, in, in churches like Red Tree, we hear this culture of, man, you need to be out there, you need to be on mission, you need to be proclaiming the goodness of Jesus where you work, live, and play. You need to be telling people in your, in your home and in your neighborhood and on your sports team, tell them about who Jesus is. And we hear that and we go, yeah, that's cool, but you don't understand these people I hang out with. They're totally closed off. They, it would be so inappropriate or weird to say that at my work. Like we, we have all these things that create barriers between us because we look at the harvest field and we just go, 
it's not actually bountiful. These hearts are so hardened to the gospel. What would I actually say that would have effect on these people? I would just look like an idiot, and they would be weirded out and not want to spend time with me. But what we see here is that God's word is powerful. And when God calls his people to proclaim the truth of his gospel, that work is not wasted. Imagine the task set in front of this guy when Jesus leaves, right? No, dude, don't come with me. Go home. Tell everyone what I've done for you. Tell them, tell them how merciful God has been to you. That's that guy's training. He's not Jewish. He doesn't know the scriptures. He doesn't have the Romans road printed out on a little piece of paper that he can pull out of his wallet and like walk people through the three circles of why you need Jesus. Like He's just sent off and he wanders off telling people how he was demonized and now he's free. And he's telling this to these secularized people who, who have no taste for Jewish myths or spirituality, who have no taste to submit to a Jewish... These are oppressed people. They've been conquered. The, the people of the Decapolis are better than them. Why would they submit to this understanding of the world? And yet, when Jesus comes back, the crowd gathers around him. Beloved, the power of the gospel is real. It's real. It changes hearts and lives, and there is no heart so hardened that God cannot soften it. This is true. There is, there is no one you know, I promise you this, there is no one you know who is so far gone and so dead that Christ cannot resurrect. I promise you this. So when Jesus calls you to proclaim his word faithfully, he will do the work that it will bear fruit. Amen? Amen. So, so Jesus shows up and he, he does this work and he heals this guy in this really strange way. And hopefully that stands out to you, right? Because it's not often that Jesus is like, come here, I don't want anyone to see this. And then he pokes their ears and spits on their tongue and looks up and he sighs and he's saying, we're and it's just kind of like, dude, you, don't you normally just touch him or something? I don't know. This seems like you're adding unnecessary steps here. Uh, and, and the reason is this. Mark is telling this story. He's including details in this story and using specific language in this story to connect it to a particular Old Testament passage. And we're going to look there in just a second. It's Isaiah 35. You know, it's, it's brilliant. We talk a lot about Mark as this brilliant editor, right? That he, he tells stories simply, but he constructs the stories in such a way that it's just, it's just brilliant. Mark very rarely references the Old Testament. It's because he's writing to an audience that's almost entirely Gentile. He's writing to the Roman church after the, the persecution of the Jewish people in Rome, almost an entirely Gentile church, people who have very little training in the Old Testament and honestly aren't terribly concerned with making sure that Jesus' ministry fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. You can compare a book like Mark to Matthew, and you can see where Matthew was writing to a predominantly Jewish church and trying to show how Jesus' ministry fit into the overarching story of the Scripture. And so he's constantly referring back to prophecies and the story of God's people. Mark is not terribly concerned with that. And so he references the Old Testament, not, not very often, but when he does... One commentator, said, one commentator said, Mark's references to the Old Testament are few and far between, but when they're there, they are load-bearing beams. I, I, I like that reference. He, he references uh, Isaiah 35 here, and we're going to read it in just a second. It's interesting, the way he chooses to reference Isaiah 35 is very subtle. He picks key words, and I'm not going to bore you by pointing them all out because you can Google this, but, but the construction of this story is unique. He doesn't pick the normal words you might use to say certain things. So an example of this would be uh, the word for the, the, the man who has a speech, where, where it says speech impediment in your ESV. The Greek word there is magalias, and this is a word that technically means someone who has a speech impediment, but is not used often. It was, it was like the outlier word for that. And it only occurs in the Greek 
Bible. Remember, the, the, the early Christians would have had access to the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. It only occurs in the Greek Bible in one other location, and that's Isaiah 35. And it's the same thing with several words here. He picks out the word sigh and, 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 and the word for touch. He picks out some of these words here and says them in a way where they only ever appear that same way in Isaiah 35. So I'm going to read Isaiah 35 for us. We're going to, we're going to look and see maybe, maybe why Mark wanted us to focus on this prophecy for a moment. You can turn there if you'd like. It says this, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. And the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. They shall not go astray. No lion will be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Come on passage like that doesn't get you worked up, I don't know what will. What, what's going on here, to, to, to just kind of sum this up for you guys, this is, the, Isaiah is broken up into three sections or three books, and this is the end of the first section of Isaiah. And if you look at the chapters leading up to Isaiah 35, what you see is that God pronounces these apocalyptic judgments upon all the people of the Middle East, Israel and Tyre and Sidon and the Northerners and the Southerners and the Easterners and the Westerners. He pronounces these judgments upon these people. And all that comes together in Isaiah 35, where he essentially says, listen, it's going to go really bad for all of you because you're all sinning and you're all far from me. But when things get their worst, when the whole world seems like a bleak desert where there is no life and only death, then I'm going to do something new. And streams will rise out of the sand, and lush plants will be in the midst of desert, and ravenous beasts will be gone, and there will be a road leading to Zion, and all of you will walk upon it with joy and singing and safety, and everyone who's affected by the curse, the blind, the deaf, the mute, everyone who's hurting and suffering, they will rejoice and walk along that highway to freedom to Zion. And I love this line in verse 10. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What, what Isaiah is pointing to here is ultimately the return of Jesus, the establishment of God's kingdom for eternity, where the curse is broken and death and pain and suffering are no more, and all of God's people are brought to perfection and life and abundance around him. Something about this image, this vision, struck Mark as he was telling this story about a deaf and mute man. Because 
Jesus, as he has broken away from his ministry in Galilee, and now he's serving these Gentile people, and he's doing these similar miracles where he's showing his divine authority. He's connecting the work he's doing to the person of God and not just a miracle worker. He's showing that this Jesus is God. And in this story, we see that this Jesus isn't just God. He's the God of Isaiah 35. He's the God who is restoring what is broken. He's the God who is gathering up the deserts and making an oasis, who's meeting people and their hurt and their suffering and the effects of the curse, and he's creating new life and freedom. This is the Jesus hanging out in the Decapolis with Israel's enemies. The God who who doesn't see them as enemies, but sees them as his creation, hurt and suffering. The the God who, who is choosing to move past judgment and move on to redemption. The God who is choosing to ransom people away from the penalty of sin. The God who is working his way intentionally toward the cross to make a way from death to life. This is the Jesus we see in in Mark chapter 7. Beloved, I, I don't know if you hear this, but this is good news. This is good news. God is doing something new, and he's doing something new for everyone. This kingdom is for all people. It's not just for this people group at this time in this place. He's not just coming as as a general, as a judge to raise up an army and cast off their oppressors. Jesus is saying, that's a band-aid. No, 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 no. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm coming and I'm fixing everything. Everything that the curse has broken, all the death, all the suffering, everything that just makes this beautiful creation look like a dead desert. I'm killing that stuff. And I'm bringing back perfection. I'm bringing death. Like I'm bringing life out of death. This is the work of our Jesus. Beloved, this is good news for us. Jesus is God. And he is fixing what is broken in this cursed and dying world. This is the message that this suffering, death, mute man experiences. Right? This man who's, who's living under the effects of the curse, who, is, who has been weighed down with things that ought not be, his God and his creator, the one who loves him and designed him and has pursued him from before he is born, takes him aside and gives him time with just them. And he, he experiences this hurt with him and he gives him life and freedom apart from the curse. This is our Jesus. Beloved, I have have two things I want us to to chew on with this as we kind of close out our time. The first one is this. By by connecting this passage to Isaiah 35, Mark Mark does something that we have to deal with. He he unavoidably connects Jesus' ministry to the person of God. Mark is is making in this kind of literary way this declaration of the divinity of Jesus. This is not just another judge, another rabbi, another prophet. This man, Jesus, is doing the work of God himself. Here's what that means for us, I think, in a powerful way. See, Jesus is our Savior. That man experienced that, right? We experience the weight of the curse. We experience injustice and hurt and wrong and loneliness and injustice. We experience all those things of the curse. We make choices to sin and wrong others and love ourselves and our flesh above, above the people God has put. We, do, we know that. And so in our hearts, there's this piece of us that understands, man, I am broken and I do need a Savior. And beloved, I have good news for you. Jesus gladly plays the role of your Savior. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
He gladly took the weight of your sin. He gladly washes you clean and saves you from the effects of those decisions you've made. Jesus joys to save you. I hope you hear that. But Jesus is not just a Savior. Jesus is the Lord of this universe. Jesus is the God of all creation who made all things and sustains all things and everything in creation owes its fealty to him. See, it's easy for us, easier for us to acknowledge our need of Jesus as a Savior. I think it's much more difficult for us to bend our knee to him as our Lord. Because those things go together. Those things, are, those things are inseparably connected. Yes, Jesus sees the hurt and broken world and says, oh, they're like sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion. I love the scene when, when G, you can see Jesus, he's taking this man aside and he's, he's looking him in his eyes and he's, he's experiencing the hurt of this man and it says he looks up to heaven and he sighs. The, the word there, the, the meaning is lost in the English, but there's this sorrow inherent in that of just, oh, your life should not be like this. He sees the injustice of the curse weighing down on this man, and he sighs. Oh, shouldn't be this way. Beloved, Jesus sees that. He, he experiences that with us. But that's not all there is. Jesus is also the King. He's also the Lord. He's also the authority. And so even as He joyfully gives of Himself and meets this man in His suffering and, and, and experiences that hurt with Him and, and longs for Him, even as Jesus is in that with Him, He is still His King. His creator, his Lord. At his will, the very atoms that hold that man together continue to hold him together. The pleasure of Jesus, the very universe spins. And that demands something. Demands fealty. Demands submission. Beloved, I don't know if you hear this, But Jesus is the Lord of your life. He is the King of the universe. Which means He actually has the authority and the right to ask things of us. We talk about salvation as this free gift because it is. Because you can't earn your salvation before God. This has nothing to do with that. This is the fact that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. And he deserves your fealty. Doesn't just deserve it, he demands it. You are his. You're bought with a price. It means Jesus gets to speak into every aspect of your life. It means Jesus has authority over your sexual ethics over your business decisions, over your education, over your marriage, over your parenting, over your finances, over your opinions of how you use your time, over your entertainment choices. Jesus owns those things and has authority over those things because He is the Lord. So we submit those things to Him out of joy. Because why wouldn't you? Right? Like, we have this American individualism freedom where we're like, oh man, that sounds awful. But guys, you were dead. You were super, super dead. The scripture tells us that you were dead and without hope, that you were separated from the promises and covenants of God. You were hopeless. And Jesus met you in your hopelessness and held you up and said, this is not how it should be. And he joyfully and gladly gave of himself on your behalf and made a way from death to life for you. Will you not joyfully bow your knee to such a king as this? 
Will you not joyfully give up yourself and your preferences and your desires and your love for your flesh for such a king as this? This Jesus who has loved and given himself to us freely, is he not worthy? Is he not worthy? You see, I said earlier, I think a lot of us are here today just to hear this idea about our faithfulness in the proclamation of the truth. And I, I love, I love that image at the end of the story when Jesus is saying, guys, please stop talking about this. And they're like, no! And they just keep talking about it. It's such, it's such a powerful image of the power of the gospel. When, when Jesus engages your life with that kind of power, when he comes and breaks the curse over your life and gives you freedom, it, it changes you and you have to talk about it. I want you to think about that for a minute. Jesus is telling them, hey guys, please stop this. And they're like, no, we can't stop. This is so awesome. A lot of us sit back and we just go, man, I don't know. I'm just not gifted as an evangelist. I'm, just, I'm not that guy that can like just start a conversation about Jesus with my waiter or my coworker or my brother or my best friend. I just can't do that. That's not my spiritual gifting. Beloved, I have bad news for you. We are all evangelists. We evangelize things we care about. And if you don't believe me, just wait till you get a good deal on a TV. <laughs> Laugh at that, but we will all tell everyone we know for the next three weeks about the amazing deal we got on Amazon Prime Day because we're excited about it. I mean to say that, but you know it's true. You're all evangelists. We're all, I'm an evangelist. I just evangelize things I actually care about. If you sit here and you go, man, I hear this, I get it, we're supposed to talk about Jesus, we're supposed to share our faith with people, it just seems so awkward and weird. Beloved, I have bad news for you. You're saying that because you're just not that excited about it. This man was so excited that Jesus couldn't get him to shut up. And that is the truth of the power of the gospel. When the, the God of the universe who designed the atoms and the neutron stars intersects with your life, your insignificant, sinful life, when he meets you eye to eye and face to face and says, I love you, it shouldn't be this way. And he heals you and frees you and washes you and buys eternity for you with his own blood. When you experience his salvation and you bow your knee to his kingship, you will tell people about it. Because it's that good. So I could sit here and I could go, man, if only we were like this guy. If only we were sharing our faith. We should do that, church. I could do that, and that would be cool. And we'd probably all leave here going, yeah, we should be missional. But I don't want to mess around with that. I don't want to mess around with that. I think what's probably more potent for us today, for me today, is I just need to confess to Jesus that I refuse to bow my knee to him. That I gladly take what he gives to me, I love salvation. I love the free gift of grace. But I'd rather be independent of my own life if that's okay. I'd rather make my own decisions. I'd rather set up my own ethical standards. I'll take the good stuff you got, Jesus, but, but if it's cool with you, I'll let you be my Savior, and I'll hold on to some of my own lordship, if that's all right. And that poisons your ability to share the good news. Because let's be honest, that's not good news. That's not good news. Good news is that the God of the universe is so good and so amazing and so loving that he loves the people you hate, that he shows up in the mess of this cursed and broken world and he feels our hurts with us and he sighs at the injustice of the curse and he makes a way from death to life for those who are hopeless and lost. That's good news. What's good news is that this king of ours is not cruel and distant and demanding, but rather he's loving and humble and he's in the mess with us. 
That's good news. Beloved, I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing a couple more songs. And here's what I want us to do today. As we sing this next song, I would ask that we just have a few minutes to be honest with Jesus. Let's, let's talk about the posture of our hearts. Let's, let's have a discussion with him about, about how much we actually take joy in submitting to his lordship. Let's be confessional. Can we do that? Can we just confess to Jesus that we're prideful, arrogant people and we want to reign our own lives? He'll gladly hear that confession. He'll joyfully hear that from us. He'll walk with us in our pride and our arrogance and he will humbly and quietly teach us how to bend the knee because he knows it's good for us. Because he knows it's better. Can we do that together? Jesus, you are so good. God, I confess to you that my heart is hard, that my neck is stiff. Jesus, I joyfully take free gifts you give. But I, I kick so hard against the goats, I do not want to bend my knee. Jesus, change this in our hearts. Make us a people who, who joyfully submit to your Lordship, who see the power of this thing you're doing, this kingdom you're creating, and we joyfully jump in and be a part of it. God, change our hearts. Make us more like you who met us in humility. You did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, make us like you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.